This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily, and this is the week of February 1st. And on Monday, we have the contestants, Steve Krupe, a retired police department information supervisor from Las Vegas, Nevada, Ali Seibel, a biomedical engineer from Fort Collins, Colorado, and Zach Newkirk, an attorney from Alexandria, Virginia, whose six-day cash winnings total $124,871. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. A category of two cities, video games, the 20th century, National Geographic America the Beautiful, carpet, and <laughs> DM, car- car- carpet, DM, I can't, I can't make the pun work quite as well as Ken did. He sold it better than did I did. Good can. job with it. Yeah, yeah. he sold it. Uh-huh. He sold it well. Yeah. It's a, it's a carpe DM pun. Um. DM in quotation marks, all the correct responses will begin with D and end with M. I was sad that they they left the video games for last. I, yeah. Why? Probably because they weren't confident in it. I know why. I'm not. That's not a real why. It's just a... Oh, yeah. Bummer. We had a couple of triple stumpers in that category at the $400 level. Hey trainers, take on gym leaders of the Galar region for your next big battle in this series that offers sword and shield. Um, That was Pokemon. I didn't know that one, Um, but I did know the $1,000 level, which was also a triple stumper. In 2020, it was time to find some new horizons and build your own island paradise with this Nintendo Switch game. That's Animal Crossing. Yeah. Or Aminal Crossing, as we call it in my house. Oh, do you play Animal Crossing in your house? I, pl- I play a little Aminal Crossing. Okay. that That's a genre of game that I have tried and found that I just don't enjoy. Yeah. The, like, the, like farming genre. Yeah. My kids are much more compelled by it than I am, but they're in, they're into it, and they've gotten me to play a little bit, and, you True. know, it's fine. Yeah, it's it's not a bad game, and yeah. you know, as as video games go, there's no violence, right? Mm-hmm. There's yes, they, there's nothing harmful or traumatic or like, it's all very wholesome and mm-hmm. it's all kids very... can learn things from it. It's it's fine. Yeah, it's a cozy game. Yeah, I need conflict. I need like mm. driving storylines and and compelling characters and things in my in my games. Yeah. Yeah, I hear that. Anyway, uh, the Daily Double comes up real early. It's at pick number three. It's in a category of two cities uh, at the $600 level. Steve finds it. He is at 400 but that is the lead over uh, Zach's negative 200 and Allie's zero. And he elects to, rather than wager a 1,000, make it a true Daily Double for 400 Which, you know, he... It's what he wanted. And he got the clue. It's about 800 miles from South Africa's executive capital of Pretoria to this legislative capital on the southwest coast. And he gets that correct. They also showed a map with like an arrow pointing from Pretoria. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But he got it correct with what is Cape Town. 
Well, that's right. Uh, um, and of course, there are three capitals of South Africa. Um, the third is, I believe, the judicial capital of Bloemfontein. Yes, Bloemfontein. Joburg is not a capital. It's not, no. Joburg and Pretoria are right next to each other. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Zach is in the lead at 6,400, Ali is at 4,800, and Steve is at 3,600. And they get the Double Jeopardy categories, the 1971 Emmy Awards, Famous Americans, Archaeology, That Title Has a Title, Mixed Bag, and It's From the Greek for... Dot, 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 dot. I really enjoyed that category, but they had a bit of a hard time with it. The $400 clue was written with one's own hand. Zach guessed what is an autobiography. Steve got it correct with auto. what is autograph. Just mm-hmm. autograph. Yeah. Zach had both both sections, you know, both both words in there, but he, the bio part is uh, from yeah. life, of course. Right. Um, Allie got the $800 clue of one color that's monochromatic or monochrome. And then the remaining three clues were triple stumpers. Mm-hmm. Having the same name, uh, Allie guessed what is eponymous, Steve guessed what is homophone, but that is homonym, nim is name. The $1,600 clue was Mother City, Allie guessed what is alma mater, which uh, is Latin, I believe, uh, not Yes. Greek. And that means sweet mother, I think, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah, something like that. But they were looking for Metropolis, which I did not know. And then the $2,000 clue in mythology, round-eyed, and that is a cyclops, no one ventured to guess there. Yeah. Op as a uh, Greek for I. I have a hard time keeping that one in mind. And in fact, when we were in like the like the practice games, like the rehearsal games before our tapings, I had a daily double where I was supposed to name the like the uh, like the nerve that goes from like the eye to the brain. And I think there was a reference to greek in there maybe and i froze up all i could think of was visual and i knew it wasn't visual nerve that that wasn't right right but the optic nerve um so yeah cyclops i i hadn't ever thought about that meaning round-eyed but you know now i see it right it makes sense cyclo and op yeah mm-hmm. yeah makes ton of sense yeah we kind of jumped around the board a fair bit we did do the it's from the greek for a category top to bottom all five in a row but it felt like other than that the players kind of had different senses of where they wanted to be on the board um oh i guess they also did famous americans top to bottom but it felt like we kind of they we were getting kind of pulled back and forth as people tried to find what category was going to work for them Mm-hmm. Daily Double 2 does come up in that famous americans category at the $1600 level and that one's the eighth pick and Zach finds this one. He wagers 3500 of his 8800 He's in the lead. Uh, Allie's trailing at 6000 and Steve is down at 4800 And he gets the clue. His work on game theory earned him the 1994 Nobel Prize, which he shared with John C. Harsanyi and Reinhard Selton. I'm not sure if I pronounced their names correctly, sure so either. apologize. Apologies to them if I missed it. Uh, Zach doesn't know. He ends up guessing who is Smith. Not a bad call. Uh, right. <laughs> lots of people named Smith. He right. he uh, smirked a little bit. Like I wonder if he, you know, was thinking of. Um, no, he probably wasn't thinking like oh, like Adam Smith. You know, um, because I think this was it was the Nobel Prize for 
economics, yeah, I'm, I assume, I'm right? sure he was saying Smith because it's just yeah. a common name. Yeah, no, I think I think it's just because it's a common name. That's incorrect, of course. This is John Nash, yes. which if you don't know him as a scholar, maybe you know of him from the movie A Beautiful Mind. Yep. Anyway, John Nash. If they're asking about game theory or like, if they're asking about game theory, it's John Nash. Yeah, you're not expected to know any other names associated with game theory. Yeah, not for Jeopardy. For like a master's or doctorate in mathematics, probably. Mm-hmm. I liked seeing um, Juliet Gordon-Lowe right below that. Um, she was the founder of the Girl Scouts. Um, and Allie got that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, the $1,600 clue in archaeology really threw me off. Because it said, an instrument named for this larger bone of the lower leg has been reconstructed. And as in the ancient artwork, it still bulges your cheeks. Zach guessed what, what's a lute, which was way off, because he might not have been able to see the picture, but it's a wind instrument that the person in the picture is playing. Mm-hmm. And I guess I could, I, I suppose I should do more research into this. They were looking for what is the tibia, but mm-hmm. that instrument is called a dialos. Huh. And I know that for certain because I literally just taught it to my students as part of a like history of music course. And not only, like, I had learned that before in grad school. So I guess I could look it up right now. Tibia musical instrument. Okay, it is also called an aulos. I have never heard it called a tibia. I realize that the clue, like, the clue stipulates named for the larger bone of the lower leg. So Mm -hmm. if I had seen that picture, I probably would have ignored the clue and just rang in and said aulos. Yeah. Or dialos, because there are two of them. Yeah, in fact, it asks you not for the name of the instrument, but for the name of the larger bone of the lower leg, right? Yeah, Named for this larger bone. Right. Oh, man. That really threw me off because I, I saw that picture. Like, I've used that picture before, that particular image. Wow. Like, That's an aulos. There's no bone called an aulos. What is? What are they asking for? Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah. If they had flipped the um, the wording so that it said this instrument named for a larger bone of the lower leg... Right then, I think that you could have um, provided Alos, and uh, mm-hmm. they would have had to accept it, even if that wasn't what they were going for. Yeah, daily double number three is in the that title has a title category. It is at the two thousand dollar level. It's pick number twelve. Allie finds it. She is in the lead at seventy six hundred. Zach is at fifty three hundred, and Steve's at forty eight hundred. And she wagers five thousand, which is a good move. Mm-hmm. Like, re- really build a lead there when you have a chance. She gets the clue. James Clavell set Taipan in China. This 1975 novel of his is set in Japan in 1600. You know, for this one, you just got to know James Clavell titles. She guesses what is The Last Samurai, but it is Shogun. Yeah. So that drops her down. And um, she never really makes a recovery after that she came up a little bit but she finishes pretty solidly in third place Mm -hmm. so at the end of the double jeopardy round zach is at 9700 steve is at 6000 ali is at 3400 and we have the final jeopardy category science words and the clue this word used to denote an irreversible dispersion of energy was coined in the 1860s to sound a bit like energy ali wagers nothing and responds what is entropy that 
is correct and she stays where she is. She's counting on the other two to hopefully drop below her. I think she's out of contention because Zach's cover bet is not going to drop him down below her double. Steve has wagered 4,000. Maybe he's just trying to head for a round number. That'll get him above a zero wager from Zach. And he is correct with what is entropy. And Zach has responded, what is synergy, which is not a bad guess. No, not a bad guess. Not bad at all. But that's not correct. And he has wagered 2,301, which is a cover bet. So that drops him down. And Steve is our winner going into Tuesday. Yeah. So lesson here, folks. If you do get on the show and you are winning, do not come on our program while you are winning. Because 100% of current champions who have been on the show have lost in the following day. Yeah. He did, of course, know how it was going to go. Like Like we recorded... Long would, after he taped, but... How would he have known? <laughs> this is live, Emily. Jeopardy is live. People Everyone are so that. sure Jeopardy is live. Oh it's so gosh. charming. <laughs> <laughs> or like it's taped every day, like the day of it. Even if it's taped, it's taped that day. Yep. Yeah. 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 Anyway, new champion coming in on Tuesday, which uh, Ken points out at the beginning, like this is the first time in a while that we've had a one-day champion at the podium. And on Tuesday, we get the contestants Henry Michaels, an arts administrator originally from Morgantown, North Carolina, Merlin Hermes, a novelist from Portland, Oregon, and Steve Krupe, a retired police department information supervisor from Las Vegas, Nevada, who won $10,000 the previous day. And I just got to say right off the bat, Merlin's sweater was incredible. Mm-hmm. It was so cool. It was super cool. So cool. She had her name. Like, it was so cool. Anyway, the Jeopardy round categories are cutting edge technology, fashion, country slash music, two letters ends in E, American names, and authors. The Jeopardy writers have clearly been listening to the podcast because in the two letters ends in E category at the thousand dollar level, we had plural of thou when talking to a group. And Merlin got that one. It is ye. They and Merlin, I'm sure, learned that from my deep dive. No, they probably learned it elsewhere. But uh, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe they learned learned it from my deep dive. Maybe they did. It was a while ago. Long enough ago that they could have. Let's just say they did. Because, like, prove us wrong. Am I right? Yeah. I I also touched on the royal we in that Mm -hmm. same deep dive. And that one was at the $600 level. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also thought it was it was fun that they in the authors category that <laughs> they got all of these kind of very highbrow uh, authors, but then at the six hundred dollar level in twenty twenty, this author of Dear John returned to familiar territory, love in North Carolina with the return. Nobody knew that was Nicholas Sparks. <laughs> I, I yeah, I saw that like that clue came up, and I was like, well, it's one of two because I don't I have no mm-hmm. idea who it is, but it's either Nicholas Sparks or Danielle Steele. Mm-hmm. I think I would have gone with Daniel Steele. I guess love in North Carolina, if I remembered that the notebook was in North Carolina. Is it in North Carolina? I'm going to assume it is. I think but. so. Dilla Double number one comes up in the American Names category at the $1,000 level. Henry finds this one as the 13th pick and wagers 1500 of his $2,600. Um, Steve and Merlin are both at 1000 at this point. 
And Henry gets the clue. The movie Rope was partly based on a murder committed by this pair. First names, Nathan and Richard. And he correctly responds, who are Leopold and Loeb. Mm-hmm. I think I talked about Rope once in regards to Alfred Hitchcock or like single shot Maybe? movies or I don't know. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Merlin has taken the lead and is at 6,800. Henry's at 5,500. Steve is at 3,600. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. A is for astronomical, uh, A in quotation marks, the Western Hemisphere, films with small casts, old newspapers, the Norman Conquest, and rhyme time. They struggled with rhyme time. Yeah, they, they got did. the 400 and the 2,000 correct. But missed the 800, the 1,200, and the 1,600. Yeah. Maybe they're not wordplay folk, you know? Yeah. My spouse wondered if the $1,600 clue, temperamental and capricious coinage medal, whether they would have accepted flopper, copper, or (laughs) flip-flopper, copper. And, like, it's not the most elegant rhyme I've heard, but they might have taken it. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it fits. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like we've had a number of top row clues where they wanted two correct responses. Hmm. And those have to be both pretty gettable for that to be acceptable as a top row clue. Um, but we had one of those in A is for astronomical. The clue, two impact craters in the Sea of Tranquility are named for these two men. And Henry got that one, Aldrin and Armstrong. But in terms of like trivia writing, asking for two things is always much harder than asking for one thing, even if the two things are well known. So they've got to be really obvious for it to make sense to put it at the $400 level. That's very true. Daily Double number two, we get in the old newspapers category. It's pick number nine. Henry finds this one as well. Uh, He actually found all three. And he is at $5,900. Steve is at 4,800, Merlin is at 8,400, and he wagers 2,000. He gets the clue. A furious rivalry between New York City's world and journal newspapers in the 1890s led to this term used for sensational news reporting. Uh, And he guessed what is mudslinging, but they were looking for yellow journalism. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, he gets the third Daily Double as well um, at the $2,000 level of the Western Hemisphere. It's the 26th pick. And at that point, he has 10,700 and wagers 4,000. Steve is at 12,000. Merlin's at 12,400. And he gets the clue. This sea in the ABC islands of the Caribbean has the oldest continuously inhabited Jewish community in the Americas. He guesses what is Costa Rica... I think he knows that that's not correct. Costa Rica is mm-hmm. in Central America, not in the Caribbean. Yeah. They're looking for Curacao here. Yeah. What are the What are the A and B of the ABC? Uh, I think islands? it's Aruba and Bermuda, Leeward Antilles, Aruba, Bonaire, and Bonaire Curacao. and Curacao. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Caribbean islands. That geography is hard. Yes, yes, indeed. So he misses that and drops down. So he took a took a took a couple of big hits on daily doubles here in the double Jeopardy round. So going into final Jeopardy, 
Steve is at 12,000, Merlin is at 14,400, and Henry is at 5,100. And they get the category Writers for Children. And the clue, the Dartmouth Alumni Magazine gave Rejoice as a rhyme for the correct pronunciation of his name. Uh, Henry wagered 5,000 and guessed who is Dubois or Dubois. Hmm. I've, I truly have no idea because I've heard people say it both ways and I don't know which yeah. one it is. I generally have heard Dubois, I think. I have two. So that's what I usually go with. Anyway, yeah. uh, that is incorrect. As far as I know, he didn't write things for children. So Henry drops down to 100. Steve wagered zero and got it correct with who is Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Uh, mm-hmm. They suggested his name be pronounced Seuss, which, if you take the German approach, makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, if you know that Dr. Seuss attended Dartmouth, that might help too. Yes. But... Steve wagered zero, mm-hmm. so he's at 12,000. Merlin wagered 10,000, which was a cover bet and a little bit, uh, and wrote, who is Boyce, uh, which is incorrect. So a zero bet ended up being okay in this case. He should have bet certainly not more than 1,799. Sure. I mean, I guess it's it's equal in terms of... Staying above Henry's double. Yeah. Because if Merlin yeah, was going to do a cover bet, I guess. Yeah. I think anywhere between zero and 1,799 is fine. You want to yeah, stay I above just, third I don't place? But uh, a zero bet always feels weird to me if you're not in a lock position. Yeah. But if you're going to assume that first place will make a cover bet, which is not necessarily a good assumption. Yeah. Sometimes because, first place. Because <laughs> people don't know how to wager. But... If you're thinking that first place will make a cover bet, then you have to think, you know, how how can things play out when they miss? Um, mm-hmm. If they miss, and staying above third place is a, is an important consideration there. So yeah, anywhere between zero and seventeen ninety nine, I think, is allowable. Yeah. So in any case, we have Steve coming back on Wednesday when we have the contestants Paul Acosta, a former support services clerk from Los Angeles, California. Nicole Cosdron, an attorney originally from Illyria, Ohio, and Steve Krupe, a retired police department information supervisor from Las Vegas, Nevada, whose two-day cash winnings total $22,000. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Let's Go Snorkeling, Scientists, Feeling Literary, TV and Movie Pairs, A Kid in a Candy Store, a uh, kid mm-hmm. is in quotation marks. And those are two categories, a kid in and a candy store. I thought a candy store would be easier for me than it turned out to be. Oh, yeah. I didn't get the $1,000 clue, but I got the others. Oh, okay. Yeah, I missed the 1000 And uh, I really overthought the $400 level, uh, which was you can buy a single flavor of these sticky but cute predators at the Albanese candy store near Chicago. And somehow my brain was like, Gummy sharks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the classic were, candy gummy sharks. They were obviously looking for gummy bears there. Gummy mm-hmm. bears. Steve mm-hmm. got that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. We get the daily double in the scientist category at the $800 level. Nicole finds it. It's pick number 27 very late in the round. She is at 4200 Steve is at 2000 and Paul is at 5200 
and she wagers 1,000. She gets the clue. This 19th century German invented an engine that, unlike gasoline engines, achieves ignition with no external spark. Seems like she was guessing, but she got it correct with who is diesel. Mm-hmm. We consistently saw very small wagers from Nicole. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, was strategically a disadvantage for her. Yeah. 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 Even that late in the in the Jeopardy round, you still have the whole double Jeopardy round ahead of you. Like, mm-hmm. That's a great place to put it all in. Yep. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Steve is at 2,000 still, Nicole is up to 5,200, and Paul is in the lead at 7,200. And we get the double Jeopardy categories 1961. What a year! Atlas alliteration. Foreign elections. There's a word for that. Notorious and untertainment with un in quotation marks Mm -hmm. we had quite a lot of triple triple stumpers in this round yeah 12 triple stumpers i think that's more than average i would say yeah (laughs) yeah and i felt like ken got a little frustrated (laughs) In some places, like he he didn't quite know how to graciously be the host reading answer after answer after answer after answer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there were three triple stumpers at the $400 level. Yeah. It was 12 triple stumpers across the game. So that doesn't that's they weren't all in this in this round. But yeah, it was these boards played harder than average. They had a hard time in the Atlas category. The $400 clue was, this Australian place got its name due to the great quantity of plants Mr. Banks and Dr. Solander found on the shore. That's Botany Bay. That was a triple stumper. Uh, They had a triple stumper about this Massachusetts peninsula, which, I don't know, to me, that's Cape Cod. I didn't... Mm -hmm. The rest of the clue was, also has alliterative Buzzards Bay to its west. I didn't know that, but, I mean, Cape Mm -hmm. Cod. They got the $1,200 and the $1,600 clue, and the $2,000 was... This world capital is named for a lady who found a bronze Buddha there. Uh, it's Phnom Penh, Cambodia. Mm-hmm. That one I could see taking a little bit, a little bit too long to get there. I think I might have gotten tripped up even if I thought of Phnom Penh, wondering whether it is alliterative, like in its original language. Sure, um, I mean that, like, that is an issue. Yeah, the Phnom has the um, the P H N consonant cluster up front and then pen is uh just p-e-n-h um and so i wonder if those consonants are are different uh, and just pronounced the same in english i don't know anyway that's what i wondered when uh when we heard the correct response there i was like oh does Phnom pen alliterate daily double number two comes up in the there's a word for that category at the 800 level as the 18th pick and nicole finds this one she is at 11,600 to Steve's 5,200 and Paul's 10,400. And she wagers just 1,500, which I would say is a mistake. Um, she's talked in the interview segment with Ken about her hobby of doing the New York Times crossword every single day. Um, mm-hmm. So she's a word expert. I think this was a real opportunity for her. Um, so, and that's a pretty small wager for this situation. 
So she gets the clue, someone who takes blame for others from an ancient Jewish ceremony. And she correctly responds, what is a scapegoat? Yep, indeed. There's a whole ceremony that's, I believe, described in the Bible. Yeah, descri- it's described in the Bible in Leviticus, where you like, like the sins of the people are transferred onto it, and then it's released into the wilderness. Uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. And then that term then gets kind of... Uh, used in various ways mm-hmm. to mean, you know, not just not just actual livestock, but um, various ways that we transfer blame. Right. Yeah. Uh, Daily Dumbledore number three is in the foreign elections category. <clears throat> it's pick number 29. Paul finds it. He is at 9,200. Steve is at 7,200, and Nicole is way up at 18,700. He wagers 5,000, which I think is a good bet. Um, mm-hmm. Could go bigger, ultimately, but... Uh, it's not a bad bet. And he gets a clue. Televised debates dubbed The Road to Carthage were a new feature in this country's 2019 elections. And he guesses what is Libya, uh, which was close, but they are looking for Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Carthage is in Tunisia. Mm-hmm. Is in modern day Tunisia. So he drops down. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Nicole has a lock at 18,700. Um, Steve is at 7,200. Paul is at 4,200. And we have the final Jeopardy category, European royalty. And the clue, in 1653, King Louis Fourteenth performed as this Greco-Roman god in the ballet de la nuit. Paul wagered 4,000 and responded, who is Morpheus? Kind of I wonder if you- there. Yeah. Steve wagered 2800 but did not venture a guess. Uh, he just had a who is and a question mark. Uh, Nicole wagered zero, um, not risking her lock, um, and correctly responds, who is Apollo? Yeah. There were two pretty big clues in this particular one, right? There's the... First off, Louis the Fourteenth, who is known as the Sun God, the Sun King, or Sun God, right? Sun King, yeah. <laughs> the Sun God, yeah. the Sun King, and also Greco-Roman God. I thought kind of gave it away. If you, yes. I mean, you may that not it's... know much about it, but if there's if there's a Greco-Roman God and you only have to give one name, it's gonna mm-hmm. be Apollo. Exactly. Yeah. Because he's the only one with the same name between the two. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's. Uh, I had that exact thought process. I got it first by thinking. King Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King. Oh, Apollo's the Sun God. But as I, you know, I sort of locked it in and then kind of read the clue back and was like, oh, Greco-Roman, like that's a good hint. Mm-hmm. So with eighteen thousand seven hundred, Nicole is our champion going into Thursday. And on Thursday, we have the contestants Gina Damico, an author originally from Syracuse, New York; Stuart Crane, a product line manager from Kalispell, Montana; and Nicole Kostrin, an attorney originally from Elyria, Ohio, who just won eighteen thousand seven hundred dollars. And we get the Jeopardy round categories: autobiographies, thirty something, are you serious? Are you in quotation marks? Pop culture. Now listen to me. And man's plane. <laughs> um, now let me explain what that category is about. Just kidding. Yeah. Uh, we had a uh, throwback to my recent deep dive on Caligula in the 30-something yes. 
category at a thousand dollar level, render unto us the name of this Caesar whose reign ended in 37 AD and was followed by Caligula. Stuart guessed mm-hmm. who is Augustus. Uh, not a bad guess. Uh, he was the first emperor, kind of. Uh, but Tiberius was the one mm-hmm. right before Caligula. That's right. Which I knew because of my research. Mm-hmm. In the now listen to me category at the $800 level, we had I'm snapping celery to make the sound of a breaking bone. I'm one of these movie sound artists. Uh, Nicole got that one. It's a Foley artist. I have a friend who runs a burlesque troupe and they had um, they had like a fully staged production with a Foley artist like off to the side and it was very fun watching him work. Uh, yeah, it's 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 weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I uh, got that one because I was remembering that. And I, I don't think that I knew the term Foley artist before encountering it there. Oh. Daily Double number one comes up in the autobiographies category at the $800 level. It's the 24th pick, and Nicole finds this one. She's at 6000 to Stuart's 3400 and Gina's 1200 and she wagers just 1500 Again, kind of keeping those Daily Double wagers very conservative. And she gets the clue. Chapters in his 1965 autobiography included Harlemite, Saved, and Mecca. And she correctly responds, who is Malcolm X? Mm-hmm. That one came right to me, but I guess you do need to know a little bit about Malcolm X's life. Yeah, yeah. You would need to know. You'd need to know that those particular terms pertain to him, right? Yeah. Um, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Nicole is at 7,500. Stuart's at 6,200. Gina has dropped down to 800. And we have the double jeopardy categories, history across the ages, questionable verbs, poetry, cornerstones, science dictionary with D in quotation marks, and musicals by song lyrics. Uh They are just as big of poetry fans as you are, Kyle. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) They leave the entire category untouched until there's nothing else left on the board. That's true. That being said, I will say I did get everyone in that category. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks in no small part to your encouragement. Yay! <laughs> yes. Song right. of Myself, the $2,000 clue about this Whitman work in 52 sections. Would not have gotten that if you if, if we had not gone over that nice. on, the, on the podcast. Yeah, indeed we did. Um, Nicole guessed Leaves of Grass on mm-hmm. that one, which is, I would say, probably the other whitman title that you should know yeah the musicals by song lyrics category now i'm gonna quibble i mean i know trivia people never quibble but i'm gonna quibble never with the 1200 dollar clue the clue is he's a pinball wizard there has to be a twist a pinball wizard's got such a supple wrist and Stuart ringen got it correct with what is tommy but tommy is a rock opera tommy is not a musical Tommy is a rock opera, and to reduce it to a mere musical hmm. is insulting. Okay. Um. Hmm. Not sure. 
I'm not sure I would necessarily make the distinction, like looking at a list of rock operas on uh, Wikipedia now. Be like, that's fair. Well, that's fair. I just wanted to draw a line in the sand so that someone will tweet at us. It's drawn. There we go. Can't put it in a category with Beauty of the Beast. You have to put it in a category with Jesus Christ Superstar. And well, let's not go that far. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to rec- see if there's anything else I recognize on this Wikipedia list of rock operas. Yeah, rock operas didn't really take off <laughs> yeah. by themselves. <laughs> anyway, we had another throwback to my Caligula deep dive in the $1,200 clue of history across the ages. The Iron Age in Britain began around 800 BC and ended with the invasion of this empire about 800 years later. Which would be around mm-hmm. the year zero, or really, right. like the year 40-something, which is when Rome invaded Britain. That was the Romans. Mm-hmm. That was a triple stumper. No one no one went for it. Yes. Nobody went for the $800 clue there, uh, either. Around 10,000 BC, the Paleolithic phase of this age ended in Europe. That's the Stone Age. I don't know if they didn't make the... Lith is stone, so Stone Age connection there, or if they thought that it was like neg bait too easy. Yeah, I actually I had that that pause because I was like, well, it says Paleolithic, so is there another like is there a more specific term in there that I need to be looking for? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Similarly, in the is that too easy? Is it just neg bait in the cornerstones category at sixteen hundred? According to tradition, this sacred cornerstone of the Kaaba achieved its color by absorbing the sins of worshipers nobody tried that one it's just called the black stone mm-hmm. i mean obviously it has a different name in arabic but right yes true i wonder if they thought that they were supposed to know its arabic name well, anyway i i saw the clue and i didn't i thought well i think it's probably a black stone i, I can't remember what it's called though mm-hmm. but yeah the black stone i felt like there were a few triple stumpers here where if it were me, I would have not rung in because I was worried that the thing I was thinking of was too obvious. Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the musical by song lyrics category. It's at the uh, $1,600 level. Gina finds it and she wagers 2000 She is at 2000 Nicole is up at 9100 and Stuart is at 13400 So she better bet it all. She gets the clue. They chained me and left me for dead just for stealing a mouthful of bread. And she gets it right, and she pronounces the whole name. She says, what is Les Miserables? Mm-hmm. Uh, which sounds weird. Because, because people just call it Les Mis. So often, yeah, it's so often called Les Mis. I wonder if she was concerned about whether the abbreviation would be accepted. Yeah, probably. I would have been too in the moment. Yeah. I probably would have stumbled over yeah. it, because I would have like wanted to say Les Mis and then try to get the rest out, and then... Mm-hmm. We know how I do with pre- French pronunciations. <laughs> so. You do fine. It's fine. Okay. I will accept fine. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Stuart found Daily Double number three, and he had a very impressive double Jeopardy round, I thought. Mm-hmm. So he finds it at the 27th pick, and he's at 17,800 at that point to Nicole's 11,100 and Gina's 8,000. He has been vocally not excited about the poetry category, and he wagers just a thousand here. (laughs) And uh, gets the clue. Charles Baudelaire wrote a poem about these vast birds of the sea. 
who famously show up in an English poem. And he seems relieved to know it uh, and responds, what are albatrosses? Um, Mm -hmm. uh, The English poem in which they famously show up um, is, of course, the Rime of the Ancient Mariner by Coleridge. So he picks up another thousand. Yes, he does. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, uh, Nicole is at 10,700, Stuart is up at 18,800, and Gina got herself up to 8,000. So she, she made a bit of a comeback, which is good. The final Jeopardy category is cable networks. And the clue is, in March 1979, Tip O'Neill and then-representative Al Gore were the first politicians to speak on this new cable channel. And they all got it correct. I had two thoughts in mind, and I went with this one, um, and apparently they did too. Uh, Gina mm-hmm. wagered everything but $5 and put what is C-SPAN, so she jumps up to 15995 Nicole wagered everything but $100 and put what is C-SPAN, so she jumps up to 21300 And Stuart wagered 3000 which was a bit more than a cover bet, mm-hmm. uh, but he also got what is C-SPAN. So Stuart is our champion going to Friday. Mm-hmm. And Andy on the Jeopardy fan notes that Stuart wagers a little more than is absolutely necessary, and that his wager actually made it conceivable that Gina could have won if he and Nicole had happened to miss. Mm-hmm. Gina could win instead of Stuart, right? He's wagered a yeah. little more than strictly necessary, so he could hand the game to the mm. third place contestant. Yeah. Yeah but it didn't matter because, you know, he got it right with a cover bet. So yep. So on Friday, we have the contestants Leah Weekend, a stay-at-home mom originally from Asheville, North Carolina, Rob Kim, an attorney from Portland, Oregon, and Stuart Crane, a product line manager from Kalispell, Montana, whose one-day cash winnings total $21,800. And we have the Jeopardy round categories City Planning, Ronald Reagan, who would have turned 110 the day after this aired. Play characters. Day drinking. From the gridiron to TV and fishing for the right word. And uh, they start off with the day drinking category. (laughs) It's pandemic times. Indeed. Which uh, it turned out to be all about... um, dates and their uh associations with alcohol of various kinds um yeah (laughs) at the thousand dollar level we had in france the third thursday in november celebrates the annual release of the nouveau variety of this wine uh that is beaujolais beaujolais nouveau i seem to remember some uh, silly stories about bottles of Beaujolais Nouveau being like put on airplanes and like rushed across the Atlantic to the U.S. Uh, so that people could be like the very first to drink the Beaujolais Nouveau. Okay. Yeah. Everybody has their thing, I guess. Yeah. Wine culture's a little weird sometimes. We say from trivia culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have no real standing here. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. We had a fun moment in fishing for the right word at the $1,000 level. Uh, The clue there was this fish common in North America is also a word for a type of spear. And Stuart rang in and responded, what is dart? 
And that's not the answer they're looking for, but it fit the clue. So they had to take it. They were looking for Pike, which is what I thought of. But yeah, yeah, Jeopardy is very committed to accepting correct answers, even if it was not the correct answer that they were intending. Yeah, it sent me thinking about like, what the definition of a spear is. Like, does it have Mm. to be a certain length? Does it have to be big? It's a sharp thrown object, a dart is. Mm-hmm. And that's also what spears are. So I, because he said dart and I was like, no, that's not right. Yeah. But I, but, you know, then I thought about it more and I was like, well, I, I guess it would be s- somewhat synonymous, right? Uh, yeah. Googling to quickly become an expert on this. <laughs> um, <laughs> it seems like the term dart has been used for larger hmm. objects, things sort of arrow sized, like. Yeah, feathered spears, often called darts or javelins, were used in medieval and Renaissance Europe, both as Hmm. ceremonial objects and as weapons. Hmm. And there's like a detail of a painting of somebody holding something kind of baseball bat sized. So yeah, it seems like it's not necessarily that spear is ambiguous enough that it can count something the size of like darts, like dart game darts. Um, It's that dart has been used for larger dart-like objects, I think, is Mm -hmm. maybe what they were thinking about. I wonder if they had to stop taping to get an answer on that. Yeah, I don't know. If they did, it was pretty seamless. I didn't notice an edit. Yeah. So we get the Daily Double at the very last pick of the round. It happened in both the first and second round of this game. Stuart found it. It was pick number 30. It was in the play characters category. Uh, He was at 4,400. Rob was at 3,000. And Leah was at... 1800 and he wagered 1400 he got the clue in this play sister aloysius who serves as the principal of saint nicholas school has suspicions about father flynn steward guessed what is boys town uh, but it is doubt most people would probably know the movie with meryl streep and mm-hmm. philip seymour hoffman yes that's right and um amy adams mm-hmm. wow yeah that was pretty early in her career Indeed. So he drops down to 3,000. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, he is tied with Rob at 3,000. And Lee is at 1,800. And we get the double Jeopardy categories. Dr. Howe. I like that one. (laughs) Islands. Corporate names. Movie magic. Artists. And handy phrases with hand in quotation marks. And in the movie magic category, we got a throwback to... Last week. I think it was with, yeah, when we were yeah. talking with Zach. Yeah. 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 The clue was it's Hugh Jackman versus Christian Bale in this Christopher Nolan film about a pair of uber competitive magicians. And that's the prestige. And yeah, we, we just talked about that. I love the prestige. It, there's everything in there. There's Hugh Jackman. There's Tesla. Um, mm-hmm. uh, n- not the Elon Musk company. The, but like, the good person. The, yeah. The inventor. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a good movie. It's got It's got Michael Caine. Yeah, yeah, no, great movie. Definitely see that movie. I might go watch that movie after this or tomorrow. <laughs> Anything else you want to touch on here? Just remember that Bahrain is an island. Yeah, I forgot again. <laughs> yeah, just just remember that Bahrain is an island. I don't, I don't need to talk about the clue or whatever, but just remember yeah. Bahrain is an island nation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Daily Double number two comes up in the corporate names category at the $1,600 level. Uh, Rob finds this one as the 18th pick, and he wagers 3000 of his 8200 
Leah's in the lead at this point with 9,000, and Stuart has 4,600. And Rob gets the clue. Photo paper company Halloid adopted this five-letter name of its revolutionary new office machine. And he correctly responds, what is Xerox? Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is yet again pick number 30. It's in the Dr. How category at the $2,000 level. Leah finds it, and she has made a good run here in Double Jeopardy. She is up to 13000 Uh Stuart's at 6600 and Rob is at 14800 And she wagers 4000 Yeah, hitting that Daily Double as the very last clue of the round really puts you in a position to decide exactly what the ideal wager is. Mm-hmm. You have to, of course, know what the strategies are, and you have to be able to do the math really super on the fly. You know, you get a you get a few right. seconds to make your decision. Uh, but I think 4,000 is a smart wager here. If she misses, uh, she'll drop to 9,000. So she'll still, you know, she'll be in reach. It'll be a tough yeah. situation, but she's in reach. And if she gets it right, she will take the lead. Yeah. And so she gets the clue. Doctor, how do you recover from this 11-letter nasal procedure? The Mayo Clinic says don't jog, try not to smile or laugh, and no pullover clothes. And she gets it correct with what is a rhinoplasty. Mm-hmm. So she moves up to the lead. Yes. So with that last minute kind of reversal of fortunes there. We have Leah in the lead at the end of Double Jeopardy with 17,000. Rob is in second place at this point with 14,800. Stuart has 6,600. And we have the final Jeopardy category, Popes and History. And the clue, late 16th century Pope Sixtus V regarded this invasion force as a crusade and promised indulgences to all who participated. And this turned out to be a triple stumper. I I got this one correct, so I was pleased with myself. So Stuart wagered zero and responded, what? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) The the contestant coordinators have you write either what or who onto your, uh, your screen before the clue is revealed and so you Mm -hmm. have a what there already that you have to finish but he just added a neat little question mark at the end of his what uh (laughs) there wasn't really a space he just eventually gave up and put a question mark there which you know if you've made a zero wager and you don't know then you know that's that's fine i just (laughs) uh, the nice neat little what just tickled me a little bit rob has responded what are the ottomans that is not correct. Ken notes before they start revealing the responses that, as you might imagine, he says, we're looking for a Catholic invasion of a Protestant country. Mm-hmm. So the Ottomans, we already know, doesn't fit that. Um, and he's wagered 2,201. He's looking to get above Leah if she were to wager zero. Mm. But he misses and drops down. He's had to make a decision about whether to get above Leah's zero wager or stay above Stuart's all in. So had Stuart gone all in and gotten it right, Rob would be below where Stuart would have landed. Anyway, Stuart missed it also. So so Rob is landing above Stuart quite a bit. And then Leah has responded, what are the Knights Templar? That is not correct either. And she has wagered zero. So interestingly, she has chosen not 
to make a cover bet or really to defend her position at all. Mm -hmm. If Rob had gotten the correct response, he would have been the champion. But in this case, it turns out to be the correct answer. I, I wonder if maybe she just really did not feel good about popes and history as a category yeah. for her and was just, you know, felt like there was such a slim chance of getting a clue that she could correctly respond to that she wanted to position herself for a triple stumper. Yeah. In any case, that turns out to work for her. And she is our Jeopardy champion with 17,000. So the correct answer here is, what is the Spanish Armada mm-hmm. sent by Spain in an attempt to invade England and overthrow Queen Elizabeth I, yep. which Ken hinted at before they started the, the reveals. Right. So that's our week. And we'll see Leah back on Monday. So we're at the, the break point. We remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash We've got some stuff up there. You could check it out. You could even slide a few bucks our way if you felt like it, uh, even if you don't. We do encourage you to uh, leave ratings and reviews, preferably good ones. <laughs> mm-hmm. But honesty is important. And if you leave a particularly good rating and review, like a five star, you get might get it read on the show, like right now. Uh, this is a review from Secret Archangel titled, Like Having a Friend to Talk With. I really enjoy Emily and Kyle's weekly analysis, and their deep dives are really fascinating. It's also very nice to have such an organic podcast where it's really like a conversation rather than a script. Happy to be a patron on Patreon. Thank you very much, Secret Archangel. And uh, you could not be more correct about us not having a script. (laughs) (laughs) If I had to describe our podcast, I would call it unscripted. Yes. Uh, Sometimes that works. I'm glad it's it's working for Secret Archangel. Thank you so much. While we're at it, we want to remind you to um, wear your mask, make sure it's over your nose, get your vaccine when you get a chance to be vaccinated. I think we're all tired of the pandemic. So we want to encourage you to do what it's going to take to uh, get through the last portion of it swiftly and in good health as individuals and as a community. And we also want to remind you to be involved in whatever way makes sense for you with social justice causes. Um, We particularly like communityjusticeexchange.org and blacklivesmatter.com as places to find a starting place. So if you're looking for a way to connect, check those out as some possible ways to get started. Yes, indeed. Kyle, do you have deep dive guesses? I do. Are you talking about John Nash? I'm not talking about John Nash. Felt really good about that one. Are you talking about yellow journalism? No. Well, I guess are you talking about the Blackstone? I'm not talking about the Blackstone. Okay. All right. So um, Tuesday's game, the author category, authors category. Was an author one. It was an author one. I thought, oh no, I just did Byron. I shouldn't do an author one. And then I went and looked at the back catalog, and I actually talked about Byron the first week of November. So I figured if people hear me talk about an author on a quarterly basis like that seems reasonable that's okay that's okay authors come up a lot yeah so we're at the thousand dollar level of authors and the clue was he began dombey and son during a trip to switzerland in 1846 that was a triple stumper nobody attempted it and the correct response there is charles dickens Mm -hmm. i had not actually even heard of dombey and son 
So that clue got me thinking about the fact that I know Charles Dickens is a prolific author. I know the plots of some of his novels and, you know, central characters and little bits here and there. I have read one half of one Charles Dickens novel. (laughs) I'm in the middle of A Tale of Two Cities. I should finish it within like a couple of weeks or so. But I knew that there were Charles Dickens novels that I had not. Well, I, I found out that at least there was at least one that I just flat out had not heard of. And I knew there were others that I'd seen the title of a couple times, but didn't know the first thing about. And, you know, if somebody gave me the title, I wouldn't be able to identify it as a Dickens novel. So what I thought we would do is talk about the novels of Charles Dickens. And let me define the scope a little bit. Charles Dickens wrote 15 full-length novels. And for each one, I'm going to just very briefly get into the like very brief synopsis, um, maybe a few key characters, anything that caught my fancy or seemed important from a trivia perspective. But he was sort of known for his use of numerous characters. Most of these novels have dozens of characters. And also, like, he used a lot of convoluted subplots um, because his novels were serialized. And that was kind of how he how he rolled. I can't do an exhaustive exploration of each of them. And I did want to kind of do the do the overview and kind of touch on these lesser known novels, um, rather than really diving into all the fine grain details of Dombey and Son, which I have not read. (laughs) Hmm. Uh, Let me also say I am not going to talk about biographical facts about Charles Dickens, because that would be its own whole other story. I, I read a biographical sketch of Charles Dickens, and it reads like a Dickens novel. There's a lot of like, convoluted twists and turns in his life. Um, It's interesting stuff. But that would take, I think, most of a deep dive to really get into. Um, He also wrote in other genres, and I'm not going to talk about that at all. He wrote short stories. He wrote plays. He wrote nonfiction. He wrote stuff for children. I'm not talking about his novellas, which means I'm not talking about A Christmas Carol today. But he also wrote four other Christmas novellas on an annual basis after A Christmas Carol had such huge success. And I'm not going to go into those at all uh, today. And I'm not talking about the other aspects of his career. He worked as a journalist a little bit. Uh, later in his life, he was in publishing. He owned some periodicals. And I, I that's, a, that's a level of detail that I can't get into while also talking about 15 novels. <laughs> so the novels of Charles Dickens in chronological order. Here we go. Uh, so the first full-length novel that Charles Dickens wrote was The Pickwick Papers. Um, It was published serially from uh, 1836 to 1837. And its full title actually is The Posthumous Papers of the Pickwick Club, containing a faithful record of the perambulations, perils, travels, adventures, and sporting transactions of the corresponding members. This was originally conceived as a series of stories to go along with a proposed set of illustrations or comic plates. Picture novels were fashionable at the time. And in fact, almost all of Dickens's novels had illustrators producing a plate or or, or two uh, with each episode of the serial publication. The plates were originally to be done by the artist Robert Seymour. However, Robert Seymour died by suicide after the first two installments of the Pickwick Papers. There was another artist who did the third installment, but Dickens really didn't like him. 
and uh, used his influence to get a new artist uh, who went by Fizz. Hablot Knight Brown was his full name, and he did a lot of work with Dickens subsequently. He completed the rest of the 19-issue series along with Dickens. The Pickwick Papers has elements of what's called the picaresque genre, which is a genre focusing on a roguish but appealing character who lives by his wits in a corrupt society, often with elements of comedy and satire. So the central character in this case is Samuel Pickwick, who runs the Pickwick Club. The members go on various adventures and travels in the English countryside and report on their findings, and that provides the kind of structure of the novel. It's loosely connected and episodic. The other major characters, I believe all members of the Pickwick Club, are Nathaniel Winkle, Augustus Snodgrass, Tracy Tupman, Sam Weller, Tony Weller, and Alfred Jingle. The Pickwick Papers was credited with the popularization of serialized fiction, as well as a major early example of a cliffhanger at the end of a seri- an episode of uh, serialized fiction as a literary device and a like sales boosting device. Hmm. Um, so that's the Pickwick Papers. Dickens's next novel, his second novel, is Oliver Twist or The Parish Boy's Progress. I knew Oliver Twist had the subtitle or The Parish Boy's Progress. I didn't realize that was relatively short as far as Dickens' subtitles go. Uh, it was a monthly serial in Bentley's Miscellany from February 1837 to April 1839. Um, it's a, an early example of the social novel dealing with themes of child labor, domestic violence, uh, the recruitment of children as criminals, street children, poverty, that kind of thing. It's the story of Oliver Twist, an orphan born in a workhouse sold into apprenticeship with an undertaker. Uh, He escapes and is recruited into a gang of child criminals. um, And through a series of twists and turns, he escapes the life of crime, finds loving benefactors, and is revealed to be entitled to an an inheritance from his long-lost deceased father. It's noted for characters including, of course, Oliver Twist himself. Mr. Bumble runs the workhouse where Oliver begins his life. Uh, The Sourberries are the Undertaker family. Fagin is the adult leader of the group of child criminals that Oliver is brought into. Uh, The character of Fagin has been criticized because of Dickens's use of anti-Semitic stereotypes in that character. The Artful Dodger is the most adept pickpocket of the gang of children. And then there's Bill Sykes, the professional burglar and kind of adult criminal, and his girlfriend, Nancy. Um, And there's a violent, abusive relationship between the two of them that culminates in Nancy's murder. And then there are benefactors, including uh, a Mr. Brownlow and the Maylie family. Dickens ended up becoming known for kind of fantastical names. You didn't see that so much in the Pickwick Papers, but we're starting to see kind of the Dickensian names coming out in Oliver Twist, I think. And let me say, I don't think I said this in the scope, but there there were numerous well-known stage and screen adaptations of Oliver Twist, among others. Just about all of these have been adapted numerous times. And that's another thing that like, is well beyond the scope of what I can do Mm -hmm. in the deep dive today. Dickens's third novel is Nicholas Nickleby. The full title is The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby, um, serialized in 20 installments from March 1838 to October 1839. In Nicholas Nickleby, the titular character's father dies unexpectedly after losing all of his money in a poor investment. 
Uh, Nicholas, his mother, and his younger sister, Kate, are forced to give up their comfortable lifestyle and travel to London to seek the aid of their only relative, uh, Nicholas's uncle, Ralph Nickleby, who dislikes them and does the minimum, kind of. He gets Nicholas a low-paying job as an assistant to Wackford Squeers, the schoolmaster at Dothaby's Hall in Yorkshire. Nicholas learns that Squeers is taking unwanted children into his school um, and forcing them to live under terrible conditions and then pocketing the money that's being sent by the parents for uh, the boys' care and education. And after some twists and turns, uh, Nickleby and the one boy he's befriended, Smike, make their escape. They head to Portsmouth intent on becoming sailors, but instead a theater company hires Nicholas. This probably connects to Dickens's interest in the theater that almost turned into a career, but he attained success as a writer before anything really came of it. Mm. On hearing of the mistreatment of his sister Kate at the hands of his uncle, Nicholas returns to London along with Smike, secures employment with the philanthropic Cheerable Brothers, helps to rescue Madeline Bray from the evil designs of his uncle. Smike dies from the years of abuse he suffered at the school and is found to be Ralph Nickleby's son. Uh, Meanwhile, Ralph is ruined financially and hangs himself. Squeers is prosecuted, his school is disbanded, and Nicholas marries Madeline Bray. So that's, that's an overview of Nicholas Nickleby. Okay. The fourth one we have is the Old Curiosity Shop. It was a weekly serial in Master Humphrey's Clock. These publications have the greatest names. Yeah. <laughs> Ran from April 1840 to February 1841. It's the story of Nell Trent and her grandfather as they wander the English countryside northwest of London trying to evade Daniel Quilp after losing the titular Old Curiosity Shop. Nell's health suffers greatly due to their travels and lack of food. And Dickens was reportedly besieged with letters begging him not to uh, have her die in the story. But she does die in the end. There's a story that uh, the ship that had the new copies of the old curiosity shop that was coming to America for people to find out what happened, they needed to put the publications on a ship and people would wait for it to cross. Apparently people met it at the dock shouting to the people on the ship, does little Nell die? (laughs) Um, (laughs) The next one is Barnaby Rudge. It was a weekly serial also in Master Humphrey's Clock. And it's the first of Dickens's two historical novels. I think that historical novels is being defined here as novels set prior to the beginning of Dickens's life. He does in later life write stories that are set in like the time of like his early adulthood, but he writes two stories that are set in, you know, time that would have been considered history when he was going to school. This is the first of those. It is subtitled A Tale of the Riots of 80. Uh, Those are the Gordon Riots of 1780. And the synopses I tried to read on this were super convoluted. This is just the Goodreads blurb. An unparalleled portrayal of the terror of a rampaging mob seen through the eyes of the individuals swept up in the chaos. Those individuals include Emma, a Catholic, and Edward, a Protestant, whose forbidden love weaves through the heart of the story, and the simple-minded Barnaby, one of the riot leaders, whose fate is tied to a mysterious murder and whose beloved pet raven Grip embodies the mystical power of innocence. The story encompasses both the rarefied aristocratic world and the volatile streets and nightmarish underbelly of London, which Dickens characteristically portrays in vivid, pulsating detail. But the real focus of the book is on the riots themselves, depicted with an extraordinary energy 
and redolent of the dangers, the mindlessness, and the possibilities, both beneficial and brutal, of the mob. So that's Barnaby Rudge, which I think I maybe had heard of once before doing this deep dive. Right. But I did learn, as I was researching it, that the character of Grip the Raven was the inspiration for Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. Hmm. So now you know. The next one published was Martin Chuzzlewit. That's <laughs> um, such a good name. I know. Uh, it was a monthly serial um, from December 1842 to July 1844. It is considered Dickens's last picaresque novel. And it's one of his least popular. Uh, written after his first trip to America, there were elements that satirized aspects of American society and culture that he disliked or found distasteful. It is the story of two Chuzzlewits, Martin Chuzzlewit and Jonas Chuzzlewit, who have inherited the characteristic Chuzzlewit selfishness. It contrasts their diverse fates of moral redemption and worldly success for one, uh, Martin specifically, with increasingly desperate crime for the other. That's Jonas Chuzzlewit. It's a black comedy involving hypocrisy, greed, and blackmail, as well as the most famous of Dickens's grotesques, Mrs. Gamp. So themes of selfishness, the American characters are kind of self-aggrandizing and... How dare he? Yeah. We would never. I know. He published several novellas, the Christmas novellas at this point, but we're not going to get into those. But his next full-length novel is Dombey and Son, uh, serialized monthly from October 1846 to April 1848. And the full title of that one is Dealings with the Firm of Dombey and Son, Wholesale, Retail, and for Exportation. Dombey and Son follows the fortunes of a shipping firm owner, Dombey, who is frustrated because he has no son. He had a son who died in childhood, and he has a daughter, but it's titled Dombey and Son because he longs for a son to follow him in his footsteps in his business. Initially, he rejects his daughter's love before eventually becoming reconciled with her before his death. Uh, so that's Dombey and Son. And then he published David Copperfield. The full length of that one is, uh, this is a almost a two-line long title. The Personal History, Adventures, Experience, and Observation of David Copperfield the Younger of Blunderstone Rookery, which he never meant to publish on any account. <laughs> Uh, this one was published from May 1849 to November 1850. It's written in the first person. It's reportedly Dickens's favorite of his own novels. Um, it's the story of a young man's adventures on his journey from an unhappy and impoverished childhood to the discovery of his vocation as a successful novelist. And it is, you know, pseudo-autobiographical. Hmm. Notable characters besides David Copperfield include... Edward Murdstone, David Copperfield's cruel stepfather. Betsy Trotwood is his kind-hearted great-aunt. Wilkins Micawber befriends the young David. Uriah Heep is the treacherous main antagonist of the second half after he gets away from his stepfather. And then there's the love interest Dora Spenlow. So that's David Copperfield. And then comes Bleak House, published from 1852 to 1853. Numerous characters, several subplots. But one notable thing about this one is that it is told partly in the first person by the novel's heroine, Esther Summerson, and partly by an omniscient third person narrator. Hmm. And the center of Bleak House is a long-running legal case in the Court of Chancery, uh, the Jarndyce and Jarndyce case. 
which comes about because there are conflicting versions of a will, and uh, it's in this court of chancery, which is a British thing that settles like wills and estates and things about trusts and things of that nature. So a convoluted plot with inheritances and illegitimate children, and there's some murder and intrigue. Uh, There's social commentary that is like criticism of the English legal system. There's one plot point where a character dies by spontaneous human combustion. (laughs) And uh, at the end, I couldn't keep track of all the characters. One of them ends up uh, winning the case and being entitled to the inheritance, but it's all been spent litigating the case itself, and there's nothing left. And there are some critics who consider Bleak House Dickens's best work. Hmm. After Bleak House, Dickens published Hard Times. It was a weekly serial in Household Words, and it ran entirely in 1854 from April to August. The full title is Hard Times for These Times. Um, it is by far the shortest of Dickens's novels, uh, barely a quarter of the length of the ones written immediately before and after it. Um, and it's his only novel not to have scenes set in London. One of Dickens's reasons for writing Hard Times was that he owned the periodical Household Words um, and sales were declining. So he was hoping that publishing the novel in his periodical in installments would boost circulation. And that did imp- indeed prove to be the case. In this novel, uh, Thomas Gradgrind raises his children, Tom and Louisa, in an atmosphere of grim practicality. Uh, Without a moral compass to guide them, the children sink into lives of desperation and despair, played out against the grim background of Coketown, a wretched community shadowed by an industrial behemoth. Louisa falls into a loveless marriage with Josiah Bowderby, a vulgar banker, while the unscrupulous Tom, totally lacking in principle, becomes a thief who frames an innocent man for his crime. Witnessing the degradation and downfall of his children, Gradgrind realizes that his own misguided principles have ruined their lives. And uh, there's the social commentary of this one is kind of about industrialism, post-industrial society, um, and like utilitarianism. The next one he published is Little Dorrit, published from December 1855 to June 1857. Little Dorrit's name is actually Amy Dorrit. She is born in and lives much of her life at the Marshalsea Prison, where her father is imprisoned for debt. She and her siblings earn meager wages at jobs outside the prison walls, returning nightly to Marshalsea. She works as a seamstress for Mrs. Clenham, whose son Arthur takes an interest in the Dorrit family and eventually helps free Mr. Dorrit from prison. Arthur becomes a debtor himself and falls in love with little Dorrit, but because their financial circumstances are now reversed, he does not ask her to marry him. In the end, Arthur's mother, a miserly, mean-spirited woman, is forced to reveal that Arthur is not really her son, and that she had been keeping money from him and the Dorrits for many years. This leaves little Dorrit and Arthur free to marry. Oh. Yeah. And uh, the Marshalsea Debtor's Prison is the same one where Dickens's own father had been imprisoned when Dickens was a child, which I think motivates him to critique debtor's prisons as an institution in this novel. Next, we have A Tale of Two Cities, the one I'm reading right now. I unintentionally spoiled it for myself while <laughs> putting things together for this deep dive. But I think I'm, I'm operating on the assumption that everybody who's listening is okay with spoilers for Dickens novels. They were all published like 160-ish years ago. So <laughs> it was published as a weekly serial in all the year round. 
from April to November of 1859. This is his second and final historical novel. It is set in London and Paris before and during the French Revolution. And in this one, Jarvis Laurie travels to Paris to reunite Dr. Manette with his long-lost daughter, Lucy. Five years later, Lucy marries Charles Darnay, who confesses to Dr. Manette that he is a member of the French aristocracy. When Darnay returns to Paris to save a former servant, he is arrested by the revolutionaries and sentenced to death. Sidney Carton, who resembles Darnay, trades places with him in prison and dies on the guillotine in his stead. That's the part that I spoiled for myself. I was like, what, what's going to, you know, what, what could really happen? Mm-hmm. But then I, then I found out uh, that's okay. It's weirdly ambivalent. It is critical both of the callous selfishness of the aristocracy on the one hand, and also the violent excesses of the French Revolution on the other hand. And you probably know it best for its first sentence. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times, etc. So that's a tale of two cities. Mm-hmm. And then we have Great Expectations. It was a weekly serial in all the year round from December 1860 to August 1861. And it was the second novel after David Copperfield that Dickens wrote entirely in the first person. It depicts the education of an orphan named, uh, nicknamed Pip. Uh, his name is Philip Pirrip, but after he introduces himself as Philip Pirrip on like the first page, he's never referred to by his full name again. Pip grows up in Kent with his older sister and her husband, Joe. He one day aids an escaped convict, Abel Magwitch. He meets the wealthy Miss Havisham and falls in love with her adopted daughter, Estella. After receiving a mysterious fortune, Pip moves to London to become a gentleman. Uh, His benefactor is revealed to be the convict he aided, Abel Magwitch, who dies after Pip attempts to help him escape. He goes to work abroad for his friend Herbert Pocket and is later reunited with Estella. That's great expectations. It's an especially acclaimed one, I think. And the next one is Dickens's last completed novel, Our Mutual Friend, serialized from May 1864 to November 1865, in which John Harmon, the son of a wealthy dust contractor, which is like a like a sanitation, like garbage man kind of thing, like sanitation business, and heir to his father's fortune if he agrees to marry Bella Wilfer, is away from England when his father dies. On the way home, he is uh, believed to be drowned in a case of mistaken identity. With his supposed death, the fortune goes to Boffin, his father's former servant. John intrigues himself into the Boffin home as secretary John Rokesmith. He meets Bella and with the help of the Boffins, wins her love and marries her. Hmm. He later reveals his true identity and regains his fortune. There is a character named Raya in this one, who is a more positively portrayed Jewish character. And there's some speculation that uh, Dickens wrote this character in response to criticism about Fagin and Oliver Twist, um, and also a friendship he'd formed with a Jewish couple that he had met prior to his writing Our Mutual Friend. Another fun thing about this one is that Charles Dickens was in a railway accident in 1865. Hmm. The Staplehurst rail crash is the accident that he was in. It was a derailment in Kent. There was a crew that 
was doing some work and misread a timetable. So they were working on the track that this train was coming on when it was scheduled to come. They were supposed to be working on a different track. Anyway, the train derailed. 10 people died. 40 more were injured. Dickens was not injured and helped to tend to injured people and provide comfort um, in the immediate aftermath. And then after being evacuated, he realized he'd left his manuscript of our mutual friend in the teetering train car. (laughs) And so he went back into the train car to retrieve the manuscript. Of course he did. Yeah. Then we have, we've talked about it numerous times on the podcast, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Mm-hmm. which ran from April to September 1870, um, but then Dickens died and it was left unfinished. The novel is named after the character of Edwin Drood, but it focuses more on Drood's uncle, John Jasper. Edwin Drood is Jasper's ward. Jasper is the choir master of Cloisterham and an outwardly respectable person who also is an opium addict. He secretly loves Drood's fiancée, Rosa Budd. <laughs> Drood and Rosa no longer love each other. They break their engagement. Drood disappears soon thereafter. Neville Landless, also in love with Rosa, is arrested for Drood's murder, um, but is released when no body is found. Uh, Jasper confesses his love to Rosa and threatens to incriminate Neville unless she returns his love. Datchery, a stranger, arrives, shadowing Jasper and vexing him greatly. And that is where the manuscript leaves off. Dickens kept his plan very secret to avoid, you know, like spoilers leaking. And he didn't leave written plans anywhere of the remainder of the story. So no one could kind of follow his plans like, uh, you know, Wheel of Time style. Several posthumous completions were attempted. One particularly notable one uh, happened in 1873 when printer Thomas Power James published a version that he claimed had been literally ghostwritten in that he channeled Dickens's spirit and uh, Dickens, uh, the, the ghost of Charles Dickens wrote it through him. Several critics, including Arthur Conan Doyle, praised this version, calling it similar in style to Dickens's work. Uh, we've talked recently about Arthur Conan Doyle being intrigued by mm-hmm. spiritualism. And for several decades, that version was the most common one in America. But there have been a number of others also. Dickens never explicitly told anyone who the killer was or left written guidance on that, but it is generally believed that John Jasper is the murderer based on inference from some private conversations that he had with family members and also with the illustrator as well as hints within the book itself but i guess we'll never know yeah yeah so that's the mystery of edwin drood and those are the 15 novels of charles dickens um okay that was a lot but i'm glad i'm glad i didn't expand the scope beyond this at all (laughs) yeah yeah all right so are you ready for a quiz oh yeah Oh, yeah. Okay. So, you know that Charles Dickens wrote serialized novels with cliffhangers. And so, this is a quiz about cliffs and cereal. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Question one. While cliffhangers as a literary device have a history that extends much further back, the term cliffhanger is believed to have come from an installment of the 1873 serial fiction, A Pair of Blue Eyes, in which one of the protagonists, Henry Knight, is left at the end of an installment, literally hanging from a cliff. 
of course. Who is the author of A Pair of Blue Eyes, who is better known for novels including Jude the Obscure and Tess of the D'Urbervilles? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, I believe, famed Hollywood actor Thomas Hardy. Thomas Hardy is correct. Nice job. Yeah, he um, did a good job playing Bane <laughs> in Batman. <laughs> Apparently, Thomas Hardy had conversations with Edward Elgar about creating an opera based on A Pair of Blue Eyes, Um, Mm. but Hardy died before that project was brought to fruition, and that kind of put an end to it. But yeah, A Pair of Blue Eyes is the source of the term cliffhanger, uh, and it's by Thomas Hardy. Nice work. Ten points. Question two. We're recording this on Super Bowl Sunday. So it seems appropriate to ask, while many athletes have been featured on cereal boxes, few have launched their own cereal brands. What athlete, then the starting quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, launched his own brand of flakes in 1998, selling over 3 million boxes? Oh my god, the Buffalo Bills in 1998? Uh... You probably know the cereal better than the buffalo bills starting lineup of the late 90s <laughs> i probably don't uh doug flutie yes oh my god I missed that one. <laughs> nice yes 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 it's uh, flutie flakes uh <laughs> flutie flakes. you know that makes a lot of sense now yep. <laughs> yeah uh, uh yeah uh, the proceeds from flutie flakes went to Doug Flutie's, like, autism foundation thing. Mm, nice. Um, yeah. I uh, I haven't looked into it enough to know. I, I know that in the autistic community, autism charities are controversial, and I have no idea whether this is one of the good ones. But, uh, uh, indeed. Uh, yeah, but nice. You're at 20 points. And question three. The Cliffs of Mohair in Cl- County Clare, Ireland have been used as the set of numerous film scenes, including the one about the Cliffs of Insanity in what beloved film? Cliffs of Insanity. If you're stuck, I have a clue. Yeah, I'll take a clue. Yeah. Not getting the answer to this question would be inconceivable. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. I was like, I know the clue. I, where is that from? Yeah. Nice. Uh, You're at 30 points. The Cliffs of Mohair also appeared in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, among other films. Mm. Question four. Jeopardy recently reminded us that graham crackers are named after a Presbyterian minister. Cornflakes, though, were developed by a member of what other Christian sect as part of that sect's emphasis on a bland vegetable and grain-based diet? Other tenets of the faith include observance of the Sabbath in a particular way, the unconscious state of the dead, and the imminent second coming of Jesus. Well, I know it's John Kellogg, and I cannot remember which uh, Seventh-day Adventist is coming to mind, and I'm not sure why, so I'm going to go with that. That's correct. Oh, wow. Nice. You might get it score um again plugging other podcasts i'm pretty sure i've mentioned sawbones before there's a mm. very good episode about john kellogg and how kind of 
messed up he was mm. with a lot of his ideas. Yeah, I, I'll check that out. Yeah, I steered away from uh, some of the more colorful stuff about uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> the emphasis on bland diets at the time. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. Kellogg's is, I believe, still ha- headquartered in Battle Creek. But the reason that it was started there is that that was kind of the center of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. That's where it was founded and where all the, you know, the Seventh-day Adventists kind of congregated. All right, you're at 40 points. Question five. A 2018 documentary profiles the quest of rock climber Alex Honnold to climb the cliff face of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park in what manner, which is also the title of the film. I believe that is Free Solo. That is Free Solo. Don't do that, kids. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No. uh, (laughs) We have ropes and stuff. If you you haven't seen the film and you, or like been exposed to like the premise, um, Free Solo means free means like you're climbing without ropes and solo means you're by yourself so mm-hmm. it's a hefty no thank you yeah yeah like, like kudos for for going to the extreme when you when you choose to but mm-hmm. human ingenuity has made certain things available to us mm-hmm. like ropes and stuff yep ropes were fairly early in the process of human ingenuity <laughs> um mm-hmm. yeah all right, so you are at a perfect 50 out of 50 points. Yes. Um, and in this quiz on cliffs and cereal, the category for the final question is mascots. So... Oh, I hate, I hate mascots. Are, what's your wager? I mean, I, I want to go for it, you know. So I'm going to do that. I'll, I'll do all 50. All right, here we go. Your final question. Cereal mascot Captain Crunch actually has a first name. Can you tell me what it is? If you aren't familiar with the backstory of the cereal mascot, then you can figure it out if you know any of these. He shares his name with a character from Hamlet, a 19th century American author of rags to riches novels, a Chilean-born actor and comedian who was a cast member of Saturday Night Live from 1998 to 2006. Hmm. Uh, well, when you say uh, a character in Hamlet, I'm going to assume it's not Laertes, because that would be a bit of a pull. Also, probably not Claudius Crunch. That doesn't sound right. The name Horatio came to mind when you first mentioned that, and I'm thinking that the others are also Horatio. So I'm going to go with Horatio. Horatio is correct. Yes! Uh, yes, uh, so Captain Crunch is Horatio Magellan Crunch. Uh, the the other figures I was getting at to help you get it were Horatio from Hamlet. I, I, uh, Horatio Alger and Horatio Sands were the other ones I was Horatio trying to point Sands. toward. Mm-hmm. Captain Crunch, if he looks familiar, um, Jay Ward, who uh, was the artist who drew the captain, also animated TV shows including Rocky and Bullwinkle, Dudley Do-Right, and George of the Jungle. So mm-hmm. that's why that. he has that yeah. specific visual style. So Kyle, you just got a perfect score on Triple the quiz. Yes. yes. I, I think this is the second time ever that somebody's gotten a perfect score 
on. Uh, Ooh, it feels good. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank Hopefully you, our listeners got some of those as well. Um, speaking of our listeners, thank you for listening. So lovely to spend our time uh, sharing Jeopardy with you. We really appreciate you. Um, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review or a rating if you wouldn't mind. If you're interested in checking out our Patreon, uh, it's there for you at patreon.com slash potentpotables. And whether that's something you're interested in or not, uh, you could certainly help us out by telling your friends about our podcast. Yes, you and they could find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Quicker.